In Canada, a person goes missing every seven minutes. Of the 71,000 people reported missing each year, about 26,000 of them are adults. The good news is that most of the adults who are reported missing will be found within a week. About 88% of them will return or be located within that time frame. But what about those that just aren't found? The thousands of mothers and fathers, sons or daughters who disappear without a trace. These are the cases that we really need your help to solve. I'm Ellen White and you are listening to Whereabouts Unknown. Thank you for joining me for today's episode, The Disappearance of David Chevrier. At this point, we want to advise our listeners that this episode includes mention of residential schools, missing and murdered Indigenous people, and violence against people and animals. Some of the incidents that we talk about may be difficult to hear. At the end of our podcast, we will be listing support services available. Now, for the past several weeks, my team of current and former private investigators and former members of the law enforcement community have been focused on David's story, and we all agree that it is one of the most tragic and sad that we have ever experienced. David Allen Chevrier was a 25-year-old Indigenous man who went missing on June 22nd, 1994, from North Bay, Ontario. David left the rooming house that he lived in on McIntyre Street in that city, likely intending to head to the Circle of Friends, a community agency, as he did on many days. He doesn't make it there, but there is instead a reported sighting of him later that day at the St. Joseph's Mother House, a convent, a few kilometers from his intended destination. Here's what we know. David was the eighth of 12 children born to Betty Ann Chevrier. Let's take a bit of a look at his family history because it's really important to this case. David's mother, Betty Ann, was an Indigenous woman born in the 1930s to parents from Wolf Lake near Kippewa, Quebec. She was a survivor of the residential school system here in Canada, and like many residential school survivors, she lived with many of the negative effects of being torn away from her family for much of her young life. When we look at the relatively new diagnosis of residential school syndrome, which is very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, we can identify some symptoms that Betty Ann likely suffered from. Things like detachment from others and the use of substances like alcohol to cope with negative feelings and experiences. Many residential school survivors went on to face challenges in relating to their own children, having been forced to grow up in an environment that fractured their family ties. The residential school system did not foster parenting and nurturing skills, and many survivors found it difficult to offer these to their own children. When I think about Betty Ann, I think it's important to remember that she was a young woman and young mother and she may have struggled with some of these difficulties herself in her 36 short years. Family and people who knew Betty Ann tell us that throughout her short life, she used alcohol as a way to cope with some of the abuse and trauma that she had experienced. They note that she was sick for many years, ultimately dying of cancer in 1976. Her husband, who was in his early 70s at the time, was not well himself, and 
he was felt to be incapable of caring for the children. While some of the children were sent to live with extended family, for the most part, the children, including David, went into the child welfare system. Most of the kids were separated and moves seemed to have been pretty frequent, but David and his big sister, Nora, stayed together. I'm joined today by David's big sister, Nora Chevrier. Now, Nora, when you were growing up, there were 12 kids in the family. So would you say that you and David were pretty close? Uh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what kinds of things did he like to do as, as a young lad? Well, um, what we do is we mostly go and play outside, play hide and seek and stuff with our kids in the neighborhood. Yeah. So pretty typical kid, right? Growing up. Um, I yes. understand that he loved trains as well. And, you know, like what kid doesn't? Yeah. Yeah, he he liked trains and stuff. And he liked hang, going to the, the lake and going to the beach. For sure, for sure. So, Nora, now, just like in a lot of families, uh, you know, when you grow up, you moved away, your brothers and sisters grew up and moved away for work and things. But listen, I know that since you were notified of your brother's disappearance, you have never stopped searching for him. And I'm really hoping that our listeners today will reach out with any information they might have, big or small, that can help you get the answers that you're looking for. So, Nora, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome. I'm happy to do anything to help find my brother. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, we're hoping some tips. Again, nothing is ever too small. Um, we're hoping some tips come in that really help you to bring a resolution to, to David's situation. So again, thank you so much, Nora. And we wish you and your family the very, very best. Well, thank you. And uh, you're welcome. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. It's important to note that throughout her brief lifetime, Betty Ann herself was victimized and brutalized over and over again by some family members and people known to the family, sometimes right in front of her children. And then she passes at the very young age of 36. So our missing person, David Chevrier, grows up in an unstable environment that is made even more difficult by virtue of the fact that he is a person with a severe developmental disability, and he is also visually impaired. After a traffic accident in the years leading up to his disappearance, David is left functioning at a three to a five-year-old level. And as if this young man's rocky start wasn't tragic enough, David is also bullied, beaten, and terrorized throughout his lifetime by people known to him, as well as by a person in his social circle who is said to have punched David in the face on more than one occasion. During our investigation, we heard a lot about David being brutalized. David was technically an adult, but again, he was childlike. At the time of his disappearance, many of his brothers and sisters had grown up and moved away from the area, and he was not protected in any meaningful way. He was known to talk to himself quite loudly and repeat phrases over and over again. It would have been quite obvious to anybody who met him that he was a person in need of protection, but he was left to roam the streets and make his way through a city of over 50,000 people without supervision or guidance. David Chevrier, 25 years old, six feet tall, short black hair and brown eyes, was victimized throughout his lifetime in ways that were absolutely heartbreaking. And then one sunny day, he sets off on a walk that he has taken many times before, and he is gone. 
In relation to David's disappearance, here are the possible outcomes that we've considered. Now, the first is, did David leave town? Did he hop on one of the trains that he'd loved as a kid uh, or come up with the money to buy a bus ticket or make it to the highway and hitchhike? We think that this outcome is not possible given David's severe developmental disability and very limited vision. He would not have been able to formulate a plan to do any of these things. And the proof of life signs we look for in missing persons cases are completely absent. David has not cashed a disability check or used a health card since the date of his disappearance. And it is possible that David would have been unlikely to know that a world even existed outside of the city that he had grown up in. The second outcome that we considered was that did David, a poor swimmer with a severe visual impairment, get confused and find himself in the lake right off the main street he was last seen walking on? Or did he make his way to the water intentionally, possibly to get a drink? We know that he'd previously visited the government dock there and many of the beaches, and it was apparently a warm and sunny June day. We think that this outcome is extremely unlikely too, given that David's body has never turned up in the 26 years since his disappearance. Also, if David had decided to go into the water, he would likely have removed at least his shoes and socks, and these things have never been found. The waterfront would likely have been busy on this day too, and no one recalls seeing him there. The third outcome that we considered was an incident of stranger abduction. A young man named Brian Dunlop had disappeared from downtown North Bay just steps uh, from where David had disappeared weeks earlier, and he has to date not been located either. Kenneth Blair leaves his West Nipissing home heading in the direction of North Bay just weeks after David's disappearance, and he has never been seen again. Is one person or a group of people responsible for three men who disappeared within about a 40 kilometer radius in less than four months in the summer and early fall of 1994. While we are not ruling this possibility out, we think that it is more likely that tragedy for David may have struck far closer to home. This leads us to our final possible outcome, that David was the victim of foul play. Much of David's family feels, and we sadly agree, that David is very likely deceased. Now, we have had countless tips come in in regard to this case, uh, far more than we would normally see in any case. And many people we spoke with kept bringing us back to the same potential persons of interest. First, let's look at the man from David's social group, the one we talked about earlier in the podcast, the one who was alleged to have punched him in the face on more than one occasion in a public place in front of lots of witnesses. This person is also alleged to have threatened David's life. Now, while we think that these acts perpetrated on a vulnerable childlike person are absolutely horrific, this person in question is himself developmentally disabled and would not have had the means or opportunity to carry out anything requiring any degree of planning. Nor is it likely that he would have had the ability to keep silent about it all these years. We do not think that this person had anything to do with David's disappearance. Now, some of the other persons of interest who were brought to our attention by more than one source were people who may have felt they had good reason to be upset with David, 
over some issues that had developed. Now, let's take a look at that. The first two individuals that we heard about over and over again are two men who are related to each other. They are alleged to have committed acts of violence against at least one of David's other family members. Now, one of our sources described at least one of these people as seeming obsessed and fascinated with pain and death and actually witnessed them engaging in the torture and mutilation of a live animal. These two men had also attacked David previously on more than one occasion. Knowing his habits, the path he would take on his daily walk, it would have been easy for these potential suspects to get David into their vehicle, even despite their previous poor treatment of him. David was again a trusting and childlike person with a developmental age of three to five years old. Having suffered abuse through most of his life, he may not have known that being hit, bullied, punched, or kicked was anything other than normal. And that is just so sad. Sad, too, is the fact that these two men that so many sources told us about have themselves passed since David's disappearance, one by suicide and another by illness. It is truly unfortunate that they will not have an opportunity to answer questions about David's disappearance and likely death. But other persons of interest remain. There is another man, an associate of the family, who beat David badly in front of several other people not long before his disappearance over an incident that he felt David was responsible for. And there is yet another man who has admitted that he pulled a gun on David. And in the culture of abuse and violence that this young man lived in, there may be other persons of interest still. David Allen Chevrier, son of Betty Ann, loved trains, beaches, and playing hide-and-seek with his sister Nora. He was born with the odds stacked against him through no fault of his own. He was a brother to 11 brothers and sisters, and he was loved by them, and he is missed. He becomes a statistic, another missing and likely murdered Indigenous man whose number just gets added to the thousands of Indigenous men and women who have gone missing or been murdered in our country. And today I'm joined by Pauline Chevrier, David's baby sister. Pauline, is there anything you would like to say to our listeners? Um, I would like to, to just let people know how much we miss our Miss David. We have never stopped searching for him, and we never will. We feel we feel like someone out there knows something about what happened to him, and we really urge anyone with information to call Crime Stoppers. You don't need to give your name. Any information that you have might help us finally bring him home. Yeah, you know, it's been a lot of years, Pauline, but we agree. Somebody out there likely has just the information that you need. Now, we're going to list the number for Crime Stoppers at the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. You're welcome. We agree with David's sister, Pauline. We think that likely more than one person out there knows exactly what happened to David. They may have overheard conversations or even been present when David went missing. 
our feeling is that David may have been targeted as punishment for something he is alleged to have done by a person or persons who had previously targeted him for abuse and who may have been very angry with him at the time of his disappearance. And we feel this too. With the number of tips that are still coming in, there is reason to hope that the true story of what happened to David will finally be told. David Chevrier was about six feet tall with short black hair and brown eyes. At the time of his disappearance on June 22, 1994, he was 25 years old and weighed about 160 pounds. He may have been wearing sweatpants, a black shirt, and glasses. He was last seen on Main Street in North Bay, Ontario. If you have any information about the disappearance of David Chevrier, please call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. You do not have to identify yourself and you will not be required to go to court. If you are a former student of a residential school in Canada who would like counseling, please call the Indian Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. If you require emotional support related to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, please call 1-866-925-4419. And support is available for all Indigenous people by calling 1-855-242-3310. Thank you for listening.